Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church. Welcome to our brand spanking new Monday edition of Last Week in the Church. Now, before we get started today, I thought perhaps I owed you a small explanation of how I conceived the rundown for this show. Here's the thing. Aside from the Catholic Church and my wife and our pugs, there are really only two passions in my life. There's baseball and there's cooking. Now, baseball is not of much use in thinking about a show rundown because there are nine guys in a baseball lineup. There's no way on earth we would have time to cover nine stories uh, during this show. Cooking, however, is much more useful because the typical Italian meal uh, consists of four basic dishes. You've got your antipasto, that's your appetizer. You've got your primo piatto, that's your first dish, that's usually pasta or rice. Then you got your secondo piatto, that's meat or fish, along with the vegetable, your most substantial dish or heartiest dish. And then finally, you've got your dolce, your dessert. So here's the menu I have cooked up for you for this week. Our antipasto, our appetizer is the curious case of Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu. Then our first dish uh, is going to be the return of the wafer wars in the United States. That's the derisive term for persistent debates over who should and more pointedly, who should not be able to get communion. Our second dish, our most substantial dish, will be a sweeping historic reform in the Vatican by Pope Francis and the case for skepticism about how much that might actually mean. Uh, and then finally, our dessert will be musings on the role of tradition in Catholic experience. So that's what we've got. Get your napkins, get your forks and knives, because on the other side of a short break, we're going to start serving up a hearty meal. All right, so we begin today with our appetizer, the curious case of Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu. Brief bit of biographic background, if you don't know. Uh, Cardinal Angelo Becciu uh, was for a number of years uh, under both Popes Benedict XVI and Pope Francis. The sostituto, that's the substitute uh, in the Secretariat of State, the number two official under the Cardinal Secretary of State himself. He is, in effect, the Vatican's chief of staff. If, you, if you've ever watched the TV show West Wing, the, the substitute is the Leo character. Uh, he, he's the guy who makes sure that all the trains run on time, who coordinates all the activity of the White House. Uh, fun fact, the substitute is the only official in the Vatican who does not need an appointment to see the Pope. Even the Cardinal Secretary of State uh, has to make an appointment. The sostituto, the substitute, on the other hand, can walk in anytime he wants because he is the guy who has to be able to go to the Pope and say, uh, look, uh, the Prime Minister of Hungary uh, who was going to come today has a cold, so instead uh, you're going to be meeting uh, ambassador so-and-so of this country. Or, uh, look, this speech you were going to give in an hour uh, to whatever, the, the union of pharmacy workers in Italy, there's a problem with an adverb, is it okay if we make it say this? Uh, and it's not the kind of thing you can always anticipate, so the substitute has immediate access. 
He is, in effect, the most powerful person in the Vatican after the Pope. And, and some would say, on some days, uh, he's even more powerful than the Pope because, of course, a lot of decisions never go to the Pope. They end up getting made by the substitute. So that was Bechu's role for a long time. Uh, then, a couple of years ago, Pope Francis decided to move uh, then Archbishop Bechu from that role to become the prefect for the Congregation of the Causes of Saints. In other words, the official in charge of the saint-making process for the Vatican. Uh, and that job came with a red hat, so he was elevated to become a cardinal. Uh, now, a lot of people thought that moving him from that substitute's role to saints, even though it meant that he was going to become a cardinal, was nevertheless a kind of demotion uh, because, I mean, let's face it, in the Vatican bureaucracy, that substitute's job, uh, that's the one you want, okay? Because that's the decision maker. That's the guy who grinds the sausage. That's the guy who runs the show. Uh, however, uh, it, that's certainly not to say that being in charge of the Congregation for Saints, being a cardinal of the Catholic Church, uh, is mincemeat. No, it's a big deal. Uh, however, uh, last September, Pope Francis... Uh, sort of suddenly, out of a clear blue sky, at least according to Cardinal Bechu, uh, summoned uh, the Cardinal for a meeting at the Casa Santa Marta, that's the residence on Vatican ground where the Pope lives, to inform him that he was being fired. Uh, well, that is, his resignation was being requested, but it's the same thing. He, he was being sacked uh, as the head of the Congregation for Saints, and... He was also being told that he had to resign all of his privileges as a cardinal, including, for instance, the right to participate in the next conclave. That is the time when cardinals gather to elect a new pope. Uh, now, uh, there was no indication on the Vatican side of why the pope had done that. However, Cardinal Bechu took the unusual step for a disgraced prelate of calling a press conference the next day to offer an explanation to the world. Uh, he said that the reason Pope Francis had given him for taking these unusual steps was because he was being accused of financial misappropriation, specifically. He was being accused of siphoning Vatican money, uh, in one instance, to a relative uh, who runs, his brother, who runs a construction company to do work on overseas Vatican embassies, and in another instance, siphoning Vatican money for charity to charitable foundations run by another couple of relatives uh, in his native Sardinia. Cardinal Bechu denied wrongdoing uh, in all of these cases. Uh, it has also been suggested that perhaps Pope Francis had in mind the unfolding London financial scandal uh, that is uh, the case of the Secretary of State trying to buy a former Harrods warehouse in the posh Tony London neighborhood of Chelsea, originally slated to be converted into luxury apartments. Uh, Cardinal Bechu, when he was still the sustituto, was involved in the, in the early stages of that purchase. Uh, it was actually later stages that triggered an investigation in the scandal after Bechu was already gone. So uh, all of that has been suggested. Now, uh, what makes Cardinal Bechu so interesting uh, is that normally when a prelate has been tainted by scandal, when he is the object of malicious gossip, uh, rumors, press commentary, 
Uh, the typical sort of trajectory there uh, is that the prelate will try to stay above it all. They will issue vague denials and other than that, stay out of the limelight. Uh, in other words, try to position themselves as above the fray. This is not Cardinal Bechu's modus operandi. A few months ago, he announced he was filing a lawsuit against the most read news magazine in Italy uh, for its coverage of his alleged role in the London scandal. Uh, now, just this week, he has announced he is filing another lawsuit against Italy's public broadcaster, the Rai Network, uh, because one of its channels aired an interview with the former Auditor General of the Vatican, Lieber Maloney, who was also, by the way, fired by Beichu, uh, in which uh, Maloney alleged all sorts of misconduct that Beichu uh, had allegedly been involved in, uh, and Beichu is now suing them. What this means is that in the next few months, secular courts in Italy are going to be hearing, at least they could be hearing if they decide to entertain the case rather than throwing it out, they will be hearing allegations by a Vatican cardinal against public entities in Italy having to do with the Vatican's dirty laundry. This, ladies and gentlemen, is absolutely uncharted waters. This is terra incognita. Uh, and so all I can say to you is stay tuned because it does not look like Cardinal Angelo Becciu is inclined to give up without a fight or to go gently into that good night. All right, our first dish, the return of the wafer wars in America. Uh, now that is a derisive term for debates that really date all the way back to the late 90s over what to do about pro-choice Catholic politicians in America. Uh, and this came to a head uh, really in 2004 with the Bush-Kerry election because John Kerry was the Democratic nominee for president. Uh, he was also a Catholic, he was also pro-choice. Uh, and there were a number of American bishops who very publicly said that they felt Kerry should be denied communion because his public policies are not consistent with the moral teaching of the church, particularly when it comes to this primordial concern uh, having to do with abortion. Uh, in the end, it was impossible for the bishops to come up with a common stance. Those debates are back now because we actually have a Roman Catholic president of the United States, the second in the country's history, Joe Biden, uh, who is, on the one hand, by all accounts, a very faithful practicing Catholic. On the other, uh, he is also a pro-choice president uh, who has uh, in, adopted and is pursuing pro-choice policies. Uh, this creates a special headache for the American bishops. Uh, and uh, they created a working group when Biden was inaugurated. That has since dissolved. We're waiting for a statement from the Doctrine Committee of the bishops on the issue. In the meantime, individual bishops are speaking out, and this week, the Archbishops of San Francisco, Salvatore Cordiglione, issued a, a message, a pastoral letter, uh, in which he called upon pro-choice Catholics not to present themselves for communion. That has implications for Biden, but because he is the Archbishop of San Francisco, it also has implications for the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who is a resident of that archdiocese. Uh, so, uh, all indications are that this issue is going to continue to be hotly debated 
It is unlikely the bishops will be able to come up with a common stance, first of all, because they disagree, and secondly, because the bishops' conference has no power over individual bishops when it comes to sacramental discipline. So uh, it will be a matter resolved diocese by diocese, and in some cases, parish by parish. Footnote, this is in some ways a uniquely American debate. Here in Italy, uh, we have most of our politicians are Catholic, some of them are pro-choice, uh, but there is no debate over whether they should or should not get communion because abortion in Italy is largely a settled question. It was decided by two referenda in 1981. Uh, abortion is legal under some circumstances in this country. There is a provision for conscientious objection. No one in any party has any appetite for revisiting that debate. So it is effectively off the table. That is, of course, not the case in the United States, which means this debate will be with the American church for some time to come. All right, our secundo piatto, uh, our second dish this week, Pope Francis's latest sweeping historic reform. So this week, Pope Francis issued something known as a motu proprio, that is an amendment to church law under the Pope's personal authority, uh, in which he abolished a traditional privilege of cardinals and bishops when it comes to the Vatican's criminal justice system. Now, to be clear, we are not talking about the code of canon law, uh, and so therefore we're not talking about canonical offenses with which cardinals and bishops might be charged, such as child sexual abuse. We are talking about criminal offenses under the civil laws of the Vatican City State. And while there are a number of potential examples, the most common or the most, the best known, I suppose, uh, would be financial crime. That is basically stealing money from the Vatican, okay? Now, heretofore, had a cardinal or a bishop been charged with that crime, he would have had the right to that case being judged by the Vatican Supreme Court, the Corte di Cassazione, uh, which is presided over by a cardinal. So in other words, the idea was a cardinal could only be judged by another cardinal. Everybody else went to the Vatican's ordinary tribunal, which has lay judges, lay prosecutors, everybody's laity. Uh, now, Pope Francis has abolished that privilege. So if a cardinal or a bishop is charged with a crime, such as a financial crime, uh, their case would be heard by the same court as everyone else. Uh, that is the ordinary tribunal with lay judges, lay prosecutors, lay, defend uh, lay defense lawyers. Um, now, in theory, that is both a blow against clericalism and uh, it is also a move towards accountability. Uh, now, however, I need to emphasize that there are some who are a bit skeptical that it's actually going to play out that way. Why? Well, start with the fact uh, that cardinals and bishops could have been charged with crimes, including financial crimes, all the way along. Uh, and that, you know, the case could have been held, could have been heard by the Supreme Court. Uh, it just never has happened. Not once. So uh, the fact that jurisdiction over these guys has been transferred to somebody else, in theory, doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see heads on pikes anytime soon. Second, uh, the Pope still has to personally approve such a trial. So it's not like the lay DA, the lay promoter of justice in the Vatican Tribunal could decide under his own authority that we're gonna put this cardinal on trial. No, he has to go and get the Pope's approval to do so. So there still is a fire break. Uh, third, 
bear in mind that assigning these cases to the Vatican's lowest tribunal means there are now three levels of appeal. Had a cardinal been charged with a financial crime and been convicted by the Supreme Court in the past, the only appeal would have been personally to the Pope. Now, he can appeal to the Vatican's appeals court. Then he can appeal to the Vatican Supreme Court. And then he could appeal to the court or to the Pope. So there are now three levels of appeal. So if you think this is going to speed things up, I would say not so fast. Finally, I would ask you, where does the assumption come from anyway that lay people are likely to be harder on cardinals than other cardinals? I mean, my experience of the kind of lay people who end up working in the Vatican, and particularly those who have significant jobs, is that typically they tend to have a deep respect for church authority. Typically, they tend to be very deferential to those authorities and to cardinals in particular. So the idea that the mere fact that laity now have jurisdiction over these crimes uh, as opposed to other prelates necessarily means that a new springtime of accountability is about to dawn, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think the proper attitude in this case, uh, as in many alleged Vatican reforms, uh, is provided to us by the great state of Missouri, whose unofficial state motto is, show me, show me. Once I see this in action, once I see cardinals and bishops actually being held accountable, that is being indicted, being prosecuted, being convicted, and suffering penalties for misdeeds, okay, then I think we can talk about a historic reform. Until then, I think we're talking about prolegomena to reform. Finally, this week, our dessert, Reflections on Tradition. I note that today, May 3rd, uh, on the church's liturgical calendar is the Feast of St. James the Lesser, that is, the, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the early Christian community in Jerusalem, uh, who is traditionally uh, credited with either having written or at least inspired the letter of James in the New Testament. But here's something you may not know about St. James. He is, of course, the patron saint of Spain, Santiago de Compostela, one of the most famous pilgrimage sites in the world. But did you know that St. James the Lesser is also the patron saint of hat makers and of sufferers from arthritis and rheumatoid? Uh, now, why? Honestly, I don't know. Uh, and when I found this out, I tried to find out. The truth of it is, it seems that the answer to these questions has been lost in tradition. We, we really don't know what is it about the story of St. James that makes him adapted to be the patron saint of haberdashers or rheumatoid sufferers. Uh, but here's a lovely thing about the Catholic instinct. You know, a, a modern mentality would say that if we don't know why we're doing something, that is, if we're not clear about what the scientific logic is for doing X, then by God, we shouldn't be doing X. That's not the Catholic instinct. The, the Catholic instincts, uh, instinct assigns a kind of wisdom to tradition. That is, we assume that our ancestors who adopted this custom had a logic for doing it, even if it is not immediately clear to us. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said that democracy and tradition are two sides of the same coin. Democracy says that people who were alive today deserve a vote. Tradition says people who were alive 10 centuries ago also deserve a vote. Quick story to illustrate the wisdom of all of this. When I first got to the Vatican, I met a Monsignor 
He's a German guy, worked in one of the Vatican departments. Uh, his office was in the Piazza Pia Dodicesimo. There are two big Vatican office buildings right outside St. Peter's Square. That area outside the square is called the, the Square of Pope Pius XII. And one day he invited me up to his office. Now this was the middle of the summer. It was a hot, sweltery day. I walk into his office. It's like a sauna, okay? And I asked him, why don't you open a window to get some fresh air in this place? And he said, well, the problem is I can't. The window is painted shut. I asked him why. He said, to tell you the truth, I don't know. Uh, and I'm frustrated with that. Okay, that's where we left it. Now, a few months later, I run into this guy again, okay? And uh, he tells me a story. He says, do you remember that conversation we had about my window? And I'm like, yeah. He says, well, you know, after we talked, uh, I called up the central administration in the Vatican. It's technically known as OPSA. They're the people who have responsibility for the offices and the real estate. He said, I called up OPSA and asked if they would send over a guy to open my window. They said they would, nobody ever showed up. So finally, I just brought in a hammer and chisel. Uh, and I, you know, uh, knocked out the paint, flung the window open, fresh air streamed in, I felt great. Uh, then I went off to lunch, came back to my office a few hours later. And what I noticed is that there were pigeons all over my desk that had flown up from St. Peter's Square because they had a direct line of sight uh, and it ended up, look, he had left some candy on his desk. They were, they were foraging the candy. Uh, and so they were shooed back out and he never opened the window again. Moral of the story is that this guy encountered a tradition and he didn't know the logic for tradition and so he challenged it and ended up regretting it. Now, that doesn't mean that every tradition in the Catholic Church is sacrosanct, is beyond question. We, we all know some things became traditional in Catholicism that we ended up regretting. And there is a role for critical reason in reflecting all of this. But the moral of the story is there is also a legitimate Catholic benefit of the doubt that should attach to tradition because often there is a wisdom embedded in it and whether it is clear or not to us instantaneously, it is worth pondering what it might be because sometimes we will be surprised by what we discover. All right, that is the show for, for this week. Please join us next Monday, same bat time, same bat channel. Remember to check out uh, the Crux site that is cruxnow.com cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Remember, too, that if you like this show, please give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet, go on the social media platform of your choice and spread the word, go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Have a fantastic and blessed next seven days. Please join us next Monday. We will talk to you again soon.